It was kind of like a scene from a movie, but it wasn't made up. In 1947, a teenage Bedouin shepherd and his Bedouin shepherd friend were watching over their flock of goats and sheep, and one of the goats got away, and as good shepherds do, they went looking for it. And in the midst of looking for it, they found themselves in a community known as the Qumran, the ancient Jewish sect of highly religious folks that, and it wasn't there anymore, but some even believe that Jesus or John the Baptist might have encountered the people in this community at one point in their lifetime. So they get in this area and they're looking for the goat and they can't quite find the goat and they get a little bit bored and this teenager starts throwing stones, trying to hit different targets, as they do. And when he threw his stone into what would come to be known as cave number one, something happened that he never expected. The shattering of glass, which was also the sound of history. What he found in there was the first of what would be about eight or nine hundred scrolls encompassing almost the entire Hebrew Bible and so many other things that would come to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Cave number one just happened to contain one of the most complete manuscripts of all the scrolls, an Isaiah scroll that predated our earliest copies of Isaiah by about a thousand years. Now this was remarkable, you know. For several reasons. One of them being that while there were little editorial changes and things like this, there were no substantive differences between that 2,000-year-old manuscript and the ones we already had. Somehow or another, they'd been preserved. Many archaeologists have called this the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century, and it all happened by accident, really. I was pondering this this past week for a few reasons pertinent to our worship and study during Advent. One of them because this monumental discovery happened in a way that is not unlike the images and ideas we've been exploring throughout the season. And that are even present in the teachings of Jesus, pointing us to the kingdom of God and what it's like and how it comes in our midst. A sapling growing out of a dead stump. Uh, a branch sprouting up after, out of what seemed to be a rotted root. A, a, a desert stream just popping up in the midst of this wasteland. Jesus said the kingdom of God comes like this too. Like a, like a small mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds. And then when it begins to sprout, it looks like a weed, but eventually grows into the largest of plants. Both Jesus and Isaiah said we're supposed to keep our eyes and ears and hearts peeled and open for it and to it. And that's one of the reasons this story came to mind this week. And the other is because of its emphasis on Isaiah. The Isaiah scroll was the first and most significant of the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries. And of course, even before that, Isaiah was significant. It's one of the reasons... We're examining so many of these Isaiah texts during this Advent and Christmas season. The earliest Christians, you know, were Jewish people whose minds and hearts were saturated and soaked with Scripture. 
They knew it not just in their mind, but, but in their hearts. Uh, you and I, we saturate our minds with things like um, sports data or whatever podcast that we like to listen through, whatever hobby that we have, with whatever Netflix shows we're watching. But these people binged on Scripture. And they lived with Scripture-soaked psyches that affected everything they saw in the world and actually everything they saw in every part of, of Scripture. It, it affected their growing understanding of Scripture. And these early Jewish Christians... Uh, they would look back into these scriptures with their Jesus-soaked brains and hearts and see Jesus everywhere. Everywhere. Especially in Isaiah. Isaiah has often been called the fifth gospel. Why? Because after the resurrection and after, the, after Pentecost... When, when their lives were changed and their hearts were changed, the Christians started going back to the Scriptures and saying, where is Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus here? What does the Scripture say about Jesus? Jesus once said, all of the law and the prophets were pointing to me. Paul once said that uh, Jesus was the telos, or the end, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, all of the Scriptures. And so they began to immerse themselves in them with an eye for where Jesus might be, and they saw things like this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For example, that's Isaiah 53. They saw this everywhere. Everywhere. Their scripture-soaked minds became Jesus-soaked minds, and they began to see and experience the evidence of his coming kingdom everywhere, including in the Isaiah passage we heard Connie read a moment ago. The parched land will be glad. The desert wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. When they looked at the scriptures, they saw Jesus everywhere. They saw Jesus in Daniel's fiery furnace. They saw Jesus outside the tent of Abraham and Sarah. They saw Jesus in little, subtle, small things where we would probably not ever notice like the crocus. In arid lands, after a long, hot summer, the crocus was often one of the first plants to bloom. And when it did bloom, it was not only a sign of a new season, but sometimes it was the sign of a season that had come that they couldn't even see yet. The crocus would begin to bloom as a sign of the coming rain. The crocus would begin to bloom in the desert, and when you saw it, it was a sign not just of life, but that life was about to bloom everywhere. The desert would be teeming with life eventually, Isaiah says. So much so that the land itself would burst forth in rejoicing. What if, an early Christian might ask, Jesus is the crocus? 
Or at least using the crocus to let us know that even though we've yet to experience the refreshment and renewal that our dry and weary souls have been looking for, we should get ready to receive it because it is on the way. What if Jesus is the crocus? Or what if Jesus is at least the crocus pointing us to the way? What if Jesus is the way? Isaiah also said this in that passage, A highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness, or some translations might say the sacred way. And it's not hard for us to see that highway as a kind of Advent metaphor because we've already proclaimed the words of John the Baptist with the children, prepare the way of the Lord. But I have to wonder today as I look back at this Isaiah passage, what if, what if, what if preparing the way is not just about following a path toward Jesus, but what if Jesus might actually be the way? I think I've heard that somewhere before. The early Christians didn't originally call themselves Christian. You know, that was a a derogatory and demeaning term. Other people were trying to demean them and diminish them and make make fun of them. And so they followed Jesus. They followed Christ. And so they would say, those are those those little Christ people, those Christians. Eventually this stuck. It caught on. It became a more positive thing. But before that... Acts tells us that the early Christians were simply known as followers of the way. You might remember then in John's Gospel, right after Jesus tells his disciples, Don't be troubled, for I am going to prepare a place for you. And then he assures them, Don't worry about getting to the place you know the way. And they say, How could we know the way? We don't know the way. And he said, Friends, I am the way. Seen through the lens of Jesus, our salvation has never been about ascending to a certain set of beliefs, but has always been about embracing a person who is the way. So that if you're here today and your soul is feeling dry and weary, if you're you're here today and you're struggling, you're feeling parched, you're longing for good news, The good news is that you don't have to memorize a bunch of doctrinal propositions to start finding it. You simply have to open your heart to the one who has already fully opened his heart to you. Who, in the words of the Mandalorian, is the way. This is the way, right? Christ is the way. Christ is the crocus pointing us forward in hope. And and, and Christ is the way for us to experience joy. Jesus himself said it, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is the way to joy. He is the crocus pointing us that way. He is the way. And as we see here in Isaiah, he is also the one. Advent is a season of waiting. And in that way, all of our life is kind of an Advent season. We're all waiting for something. And whether we know it or not, Jesus is the one we've all been waiting for. The scripture-soaked brain of John the Baptist was certain of it. Until, that is, he wasn't. The gospel reading in the lectionary 
for the third Sunday of Advent comes from Matthew chapter 11. It's one of my favorite moments in the gospel. And if you come on Wednesday night, uh, you'll get to hear Alina teach about it as we eat our chicken and whatever else you can find together. It is one of my favorite moments. John has been proclaiming the coming of God's promises, saying that all of God's promises are going to come true in Jesus. He's the one we've all been waiting for, John says. He is sure of it. But then he goes to prison. Then he's about to be beheaded, which is a bit unsettling. And as, I, as he awaited this, a thought began to bore its way into his mind and heart that was more unsettling than the beheading. And it was this. Was I wrong? Did I get this Wrong? John believed Jesus was the one. He'd known it. He'd felt it deep in his soul since he was born. But as he was looking out the bars of those prison windows, he couldn't help but think this wasn't unfolding in the way that he'd always envisioned. Like us, John had certain ideas about what it was supposed to mean for Jesus to be the one and and what that was supposed to look like and when it was supposed to look like that. And what he's seeing right now isn't quite matching up to what he'd hoped for. I wonder if any of you have ever found yourself in a place like that. Where God was not doing exactly what you'd hoped for in exactly the way you hoped God would do it or when you hoped God would do it. That's where John the Baptist is right now as he sends this messenger out to Jesus from jail with a question. It seems to be his dying wish. He has to know the answer. Are you the one? Are you the one or should we wait for another? Are you the one, Jesus, or did I get it wrong? Should we wait for another? Did I get this right, or have I totally blown it? I thought it was you. Is it you? And in response, Jesus sends a reply back that he knew John's Scripture-soaked brain would understand. Because he knew that John knew Isaiah. So he says, go back and tell John this. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Does that sound familiar at all? Let me reread that part of Isaiah we heard a moment ago. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shall shout for joy. We've heard that somewhere, right? Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. Which I don't know about you, but to me that sounds just a little bit like... If you knew the gift of God and who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Because everyone who drinks water from a well will be thirsty again, but 
But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, today is Joy Sunday. If you've come here today looking for joy, if your soul feels parched and and dry and you've come here today longing for some kind of new sustenance and satisfaction, I want you to know that the Jesus the early Christians found in the pages of Scripture And the Jesus that they found walking the streets of Capernaum and Galilee and the Jesus they found in the Spirit at Pentecost is here. Advent crocuses are all around us pointing us to His presence. He's calling you to a way of meaning and and joy where His life will flourish in you and your joy will be made complete. So if you're here this morning and your soul is crying out, I want you to know what John the Baptist knew most of the time, except when he didn't. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And... Jesus is the one who has been waiting here all along with open arms and an open heart for you. May we all also open our arms and our hearts joyfully, even now, as we sing.